you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 12 this evening. Psalm chapter 12. As you're turning there, I'm going to read a verse of Scripture I meant to read just before our prayer time, as oftentimes I like to do. It kind of reminds us of what we're doing, kind of reminds us of our privilege as the church. And I'm reading from 1 Peter 4, 7, where Peter reminds the early church, and by extension he reminds us as well, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. May the Lord help us and strengthen us as we do exactly that. Psalm chapter 12 this evening, we're continuing our study through the book of Psalms here on Wednesday evenings. And we come to Psalm 12, which describes the deceitfulness of the fallen world and the godly man's plight. In fact, the superscription underneath Psalm 12 is to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. So David is the author. This is a psalm that is written to be sung. So this is not just uh, for our study and edification and strengthening tonight. It is a song that is throughout the history of God's people been turned into a melody to sing unto the Lord. So beginning there in verse 1, David cries out and he says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone, with his neighbor, With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Verse 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And then verse 8, The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Well, this is the word. Of God. The title of tonight's sermon, Bible study, our lesson tonight is this Godly living in a crumbling world. Godly living in a crumbling world. Psalm 12 builds upon the foundation that we've just kind of in a, in a, in a it's different, but in a cyclical way, building upon the, the well worn path of Psalm 10 and 11 and now Psalm 12, where there's some similar themes that are beginning to run uh, through each one of these psalms. We see a connection between, as we look into Psalm 12, back to Psalm 10, where the emphasis is put on those speech or the hot words or the arrogance of the wicked. We see the phrases that they will say in Psalm 10. And again, we see another example of that, some things here in Psalm 12. In yesteryear, at the turn of the century, J. Gresham Macon, who was greatly used of God to circumvent liberalism in the mainline denominational church and the Presbyterian church. 
gave this quote as he led with a number of godly men, particularly the reform and just against liberalism, led the helm, I believe was at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. J. Gresham Macon said this, he said, America is running on the momentum of a godly ancestry. And when that momentum goes, God help America. What we find is, is that even though J. Gresham Macon said that, there, there is so much truth to that. And we find ourselves even now in 2023, not in the 1930s or 40s when this was said, but in 2023, we continue to say to ourselves, not God bless America, although we wish that, but God help America. The refrain from our lips and our prayers is regularly, God, we want you to bless America, but you're not going to bless America if you do not help bring America back to you in re repentance and humility and revival. So what we find here in Psalm 12 is that David, much like true disciples of Jesus, David finds himself, true disciples of Christ find themselves as a minority in this fallen Genesis 3 world. And living as a minority, living as salt and light, comes not without its pressures. And regularly the, those pressures overflow into the emotional life and the spiritual life of the Christian, the follower of Christ. And so we see this exclamation, we see this cry of not necessarily despair, but this cry of lament of David to God, saying, God, help. Now already in Psalm 1, we've seen the psalmist give contrast to the way of the godly in the way of the ungodly. In fact, Psalm 1 stands as if the, the great gate to the rest of the Psalms that, that helps us to understand the, and interpret the Psalms that there is a way of the godly and there is a way of the ungodly. Following in on Psalm 1, Psalm 2 speaks of the arrogance and the boldness of the leadership of the fallen world that is timeless. It was then and it is now. That the leaders of this world convene themselves together. We think there's a convening happening right now over in Europe. And I don't know what all is going on as other talks are going on as our world leaders come together. But regularly there's a pattern of the leadership of this fallen Genesis 3 world taking confidence and boldness that as they ascend in power, they start off as ordinary people and they begin to grow in rank and they have profession and then they serve in that profession for a number of years and then they're... Uh, run for elected office and then they're put into elected office and then they just keep moving up maybe a representative maybe a senator maybe a vice president maybe a cabinet member ultimately a, a vice president a president kings and other countries you get the idea and they reach all the way to the top and they experience intoxicating power and resources and they begin to get arrogant they begin to become like roman um, Caesars and rulers who view themselves as God-like. And one of the things they, they feel and experience and even say is, is well, who's going to stop us? We're in the driver's seat. We'll do whatever we want to do. And we're going to do and say and live the way we're going to live. Ultimately, Psalm 2 describes how the world leaders come together against God and against his anointed. And their judgment is previewed there in Psalm 2. All of it describes this fallen world that we live in, that there is a crumbling society. Not only in David's day as he begins to look around and lament that there is a crumbling society and that the truth is not clearly heard and seen, and he says, God help. But friends, we, we, we experience that 
even here today as well. In the 1980s, we heard a lot about the, major, the moral majority, right? The moral majority, not to get into that. But I think it's safe to say that here in 2023, we are the moral minority. We are the moral minority. And so as believers, as disciples of Christ, we will experience opposition to the cause of righteousness as we seek to be faithful to the gospel, faithful, I guess the key word of tonight is faithful to the truth, faithful to the truth, that we will experience hostility, opposition, restraint, lies, and the only way or place to turn is ultimately to the Lord. I just want to maybe give a challenge here. I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm not trying to be uh, overly uh, whatever, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, something we've said in previous weeks is that one of the reasons why America is in the condition that it is in, as we make application from Psalm 12 to, to America today, is that God's people or Christians, or you could even say professing Christians, know their place. That's something we have emphasized a couple of different times. What do we mean by that? God's people don't speak up. God's people don't speak with the truth when it's needed. God's people are, are silent. God's people are, are, are not standing faithfully, and that is why there is not more of a, of a problem in America than there is today. There is a problem in America, yeah, and the problem is not only that wickedness reigns, but the greater problem is that God's people are silent. We know our place. Those who choose to take a stand and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to say, here I stand, Martin Luther-esque, uh, here I stand, I can do nothing else. I will not go. To go against conscience is not safe nor right. Conscience that is rooted and captivated by Scripture. And quite frankly, as many Christians in America today don't even have a Psalm 12 lament because they're not living faithful to the truth. But here, David is. And he laments as he looks around. David observes the righteous remnant is growing smaller and smaller and smaller. It's diminishing. As David looks around, he sees society is disintegrating. Truth is crumbling. Sin is flourishing. And friends, that's what we see today, isn't it? As we look around our land, we see the righteous remnant diminishing. Society disintegrating. Truth crumbling. And sin flourishing. It used to be that if we could just get to the truth, then the truth, once people knew the truth, or if we could hear the truth, we would then do right. We live in a land today that the truth is proclaimed in the streets, and men don't care. So in this desperate hour, what are we to do? Are we being fantastic? Are we, um, are we looking for attention? No, I don't think so. I think we find ourselves here in Psalm 12 hearing with a, with a chord of, of uh, recognition of saying, this is it. This is language for me as I pray. How do I pray as a Christian? How, does I how do I pray as I read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Knoxville News Sentinel, and, and World Magazine, and as I read The Economist, as we read all the, the headlines, how do we pray when everything seems to be falling apart? Well, we would look at David. What does David do? David seeks the Lord. David does what all believers must do. He turns to God in prayer, and he trusts God for the promises that God has given. And David finds strength that only God can give to live through a crisis. 
We're going to frame our thoughts very quickly like this. Number one, the predicament that David finds himself in. The predicament. Secondly, the plea. Thirdly, the promise. And then lastly, number four, the peace that David has. Number one, as we will look here in our text, verses one and two, let's notice first the predicament that David finds himself in. And as I've touched on in our introduction, two key things that David has zeroed in on in his moment of alarm and David's moment of concern is that, number one, the godly have decreased and the ungodly have increased. The predicament that David finds himself in is twofold. That as he looks around for comrades and arms, for faithful friends who are going to stand with him in the truth, what he finds is seemingly that the godly have decreased in number. And secondly, it's a sub-point, he sees and there is the appearance that the ungodly have increased in the number. Notice there verse 1. He, he's lamenting. He's concerned that God's people have decreased. He says, help, Lord. This is a cry. He says, help, Lord, for the, the godly man ceases, ceases to be. He's nowhere to be found. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. David picks up on the proverb that says, a faithful man, key emphasis there, faithful to God, faithful to the truth, a faithful man who can find. Many are they who will speak of their own goodness. Come back to that in a minute. Flattery, boasting, empty words. Many are those who will tell you, if you listen, audibly in person and online, their accomplishments, all that they have done, who they are. They will boast of themselves, but a faithful man who can find. Well, that's what David's wondering. He says, where are the faithful men? Where are the godly? And so secondly, the second thing he looks around, verse 2, he gives description to the fact that it seems as if, as he looks around, in the absence of the godly, the ungodly have increased. He says, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart they speak. So they speak, and they speak a lot. They're undermining, particularly in David's context, his regime, his government, as we saw last week in Psalm 11, that, that key question is, is, if the foundations be destroyed, what will, what can the righteous do? And we made application to, in every sphere and structure, institution, in our nation and in the world today, they're all being attacked. Government, the home, the church. If the foundations be destroyed, what will, what can the righteous do? One of the things that is being destroyed is the foundations of truth and how is truth predominantly communicated. It's through words, truth and communication. There is an assault on words today. There is an assault on communication today. There's an assault on truth that is, as it is taught and revealed. And I don't just mean in the form of the gospel. I'm talking about reality. There is an assault on reality, how we understand reality, the framing of narratives and so it causes the godly to look around and say, God, is there, what is true? You've heard the phrase, just as an aside, that history belongs to the, the winner. The winner wins the war. He determines the narrative. We often struggle and understand and say, what, what is the most factual account of this man's life? Is this a hagiography? Is this a biography? We understand the truth is important. The truth, the truth matters. As we come to our modern experience in our modern world that we live in, we hear this cry of David, and it resonates with us. Lord, help, the godly man ceases. As he looks around and sees the ungodly, they speak idly, everyone, 
with his neighbor, and that neighbor with his neighbor, that neighbor with his neighbor begins to spread like wildfire with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. So David knows that he's not the sole believer on earth. We find this in verse 7. He uses the word us, but here he is lamenting like many of God's men. Like many of God's prophets, he is lamenting that there seems to be no one standing uh, with him. For example, in Micah chapter 7, verse 2, Micah, the prophet, said this. He says, the godly had been swept from the land. Micah, in a moment, you could say, of depression, as he looks around and says, where's my band of brothers? Micah says, not one upright man remains. Well, of course, that's a comprehensive statement. And of course, that can't be true. But, lest you laugh too quickly, it was true in Noah's day. There was a day, there have been times, where the godly have been very few. And we know, and in wisdom, know to stay away from comprehensive statements like all and never, you always do this, there is no one. Those types of things are not good for healthy relationships. But here we see that, that godly men have cried out to the Lord. David and Micah. Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 57 verse 1. He says, The righteous perish and devoted men to Yahweh are, are taken away. Maybe the most famous one is the prophet Elijah. You're familiar with that, no doubt. 1 Kings 19 verse 10 and 14. Where Elijah laments to the Lord in a moment of depression after great victory that he alone is left of the godly men of Israel. And the Lord comes to him and says, No, there are hundreds of men who have not bowed the knee Baal. And church, I just want to say to us tonight, there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of believers, I'm not going to necessarily say men in government, or pastors in the, in the churches, or governors in, of the states, and leadership is kind of the focus of, in a national scale here of David's point. But let's be encouraged tonight that even in dark moments that, I'll just to quote the scriptures, that there are many who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Amen? So in our moments of feeling small. In our moments of feeling like the remnant, yes, the scriptures do describe God's people as being the remnant, and to be a remnant means there's, there's a few, but be encouraged that God's purposes will not be thwarted. But that being said, there are moments that are so important. As we look here in this text, Psalm 12 gives us articulation for prayer, lament to the Lord as we hear David's cry, and we affirm it and claim it as our own in song and in prayer. So this is the predicament. It was a predicament in David's day, and it's a predicament that we find ourselves in even today. Secondly, notice the plea that David gives to the Lord. And let's give David credit here. David is a, an able guide. David is an able guide for me and for you as, as he is experiencing depression, lament, crying out to the Lord, but he doesn't stay there. And here in America, we love our struggles, don't we? We, we stay rooted in our struggles. Our struggles and our sin all become our identity. This is just, we, we take those labels and we say it's who we are. Well, David does not stay there, and he does not allow his despondency and his depression and his struggles be who he is. He takes it to God in prayer. And friends, I just want to say to all of us, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Take your burden to the Lord and keep taking it to the Lord until, until you can leave it there. Sometimes it takes a, a while before we can fully leave it with the Lord. But just keep seeking it. That's what we find here. Secondly, David's plea. He begins to seek the Lord for help. 
And David prays that God will do something specific, something particular. Notice in verses 3 and 4, he asks that the Lord would cut off the language of the wicked, cut off their flattering lips, cut off their boastful tongues, literally like a, a conquering king who would sometimes, as a form of punishment over, uh, over those he defeated, would literally take a, a sword or dagger, a two-edged sword, and cut off their tongues as a form of punishment. Metaphorically, Dave here is saying they are, they are uh, flattering, they are boasting, they are uh, doing wickedness with their words, cut it off, God. Cut off their flattering lips. Cut off their boastful tongues. Well, what is it that David is asking God, Yahweh, to do specifically? What are they saying? Well, notice there in verse 3. With our tongue, we will prevail. With our lips, excuse me, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Now, we're not going to spend time here tonight, but just by way of application and conversation maybe after the Bible study. This describes, in my just as an aside, this is not what David is saying. But this describes those who, who own the media companies. This describes those who are the, the, um, the brokers of communication, social media giants, and all those types of things. Imagine them saying it in our day. With our tongue, we will prevail. Our own lips are our own. Who's going who's gonna to stop it? We are the brokers of narrative. We are the brokers of truth. We are those who will put forth whatever narrative we want to put forth. And truly, we find ourselves... In a way, then we say, Lord, what is the truth? Not in the way that Pilate says, truth, what is truth? But Lord, we are told things, but what is the actual truth? Not only are they flattering, not only are they boastful, notice what they say in verse 4, who is Lord over us? This, this is where it echoes the language of Psalm 10. There is no God. There is no accounting. Megalomaniacs and people that experience power and grow in position and resources begin to view themselves as God. There is no God. They are God. For surely if there was a God, how did he let them get to where they are right now? They become intoxicated with all that they have. They begin to put forth falsehoods and subterfuge and attack the truth in order to gain control. And so this is what they say with arrogance. With our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? So this, this language that they use, even going back to verse 2, notice how verse 2 describes, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart they speak. I just want to take a moment here to describe those flattering lips and the double heart. The flattering lips is simply saying that which is not true. It's saying to people what they want to hear. It, it, one definition is given by R. Kent Hughes in his book, The Spiritual Disciplines of a Godly Man, that flattery is what we say uh, to people's faces. Uh, we say it to their faces what we would never say behind their back to someone else. We say praise or affirmation to them, but it's not genuine. It's not real because it's, it's for intended purposes. It's for control. It's for personality control, making people serve our ends. Flattery. Friends, flattery is prevalent today, isn't it? You are great. You are good. Think about it when our politicians get together, but not just our politicians. Everyone, the wicked, use flattery as a tool for their wickedness and their intended purposes, their ends. Flattery. Then the second description there in verse 2, just as a way of 
describing these words is simply this. With a double heart, they speak. Some translations render that with empty words. With a double heart. It means this, falsehoods, lies. And in the scriptures, there's different usages of it. James describes it as a, two, a double-minded man who speaks empty words. So, so empty words here with a double heart. New King James renders it a little bit more consistently. A double heart is plumb line a little bit better uh, to a double-minded man, as James describes. But either way, you get the idea. They, they say something here to someone, but that's one face. And they come over here and they say something else. That is a completely different falsehood. It's, a, it's a something else. It's a, a Dr. Jekyll and a, and a Mr. Hyde. You say, well, what's your point? Well, that's what they're doing. But church, we should, we should not be that way. We are a people of the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is the truth. And as his disciples, the most precious, valuable commodity that we have is the truth. The truth is the most precious thing we have, that we own. And more about that when we come to verse 7. And so that we value the truth. And so we are to speak in truth. We are not to say things we don't mean. It would be better to let some awkwardness take place and to, and to simply be silent than to say false words that are not true. Because this is how the wicked operate. They speak with flattery. They speak with empty words. They are double-souled. They are two-faced. They are double-minded. And double-minded people have double-minded words. They say one thing here and another thing there. Here's the problem with liars. It does wreaks havoc upon people trying to live in the truth. Think about how government works. Think, think about how churches operate. Think about how schools operate. Think about how the home, let's bring it into the nuclear level, how a marriage, if a marriage does not have truth, it doesn't have something that's real. Your marriage needs truth. Your parenting needs truth. Your church needs truth. And your church is the truth. It's the, the pillar and support and ground of the truth. Our schools need truth. Our government needs the truth, and that is exactly what we are trying to shove into the closets. The truth of Scripture, the truth of God's Word. We're trying to completely sear it off the national scene and out of every corner of the public square. And in its place, we speak with lies and falsehoods. And if one person says, if you give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. And everybody's driven by some type of animalistic intended end. So number one, the predicament. Number two, the plea. But notice again how shiftly David is able to, to move, how quickly David is able to shift in a different direction. And the reason he's able to do that is that David is assured by the promise of God. And what we find here beginning in verse 5 is that God gives a promise of protection. And he can give this promise of protection is because he will triumph. Verse 5, the Lord is speaking here. This is one of those examples where you have to read it a couple times to figure out who is speaking here, shifting from one perspective to another. The Lord speaking says this, Yahweh, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says Yahweh. I will set him in, in the safety for which he yearns. Particularly here, Yahweh gives attention to the fact that the weak and the needy were suffering under this ungodly attack. He gives, shines a light, particularly in how it affects the least of these. He speaks with power and authority. 
God speaks with certainty and he gives a promise to David. And this encourages David and he promises that he will protect them from those who had their intended, who intend to hurt them or malign them. And here's the point for our purposes. David believed it. David took the Lord at his word. And friends, I just want to remind us, we need to take God at his word. And you say, well, why should we do that? Because he is truth. He is truth. And his word is truth. His word is like a a supernatural flashlight that shines into the fog of this world and completely surgically divides it and says, this is truth, this is fact, this is what will happen. Here are the promises of God. I will protect those who are being abused. I will work on their behalf. God speaks truth, and this is why David is encouraged. Verse 6, God continues, and this description is given, the words of Yahweh are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. In one sense, Psalm 12 is about words. On the one hand, we have the empty, vain words of the ungodly, those who are speaking deceitful words, destructive words, verses 2 through 4. And now on the scene, God says, here's what you can take to the bank. And it's the pure words of Scripture, the pure words of God. And the stark contrast to the profane words of sinners, verses 2 through 4, here in verse 7, God, in verse 6, God speaks pure words that are trustworthy. And they are like silver that's been refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. The Lord spoke without any mixture of error. This number reference to the number seven points us to perfection. Here's the point. It's not about the seven. It's the seven simply points to the fact that a perfection, God's words, are eternal words. They're sure words. They're true words. You can take it to the bank. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Psalm 30, verse 5. Psalm 12 is a, is a picture for the verse, Psalm 30, verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in him. And here we see David receiving and experiencing that, that truth and that assurance and that practical protection that God provides and gives to him. Friends, I just want to say this evening, in case you need to be encouraged, you can trust God's word. God's word will feed you. God's word will sanctify you. God's word will wash you. God's word should dwell in you richly. God's words will lead you. The word of God is a way to our path and a light to our feet. We are thankful for a church that from its beginning is rooted in God's word. It makes clear that we're not here to waste time or go through the motions. Uh, we yield our times together over to the word of God. And why do we do that? Well, not just because we do that. Sometimes you can do things so often they just become tradition. This is what we do. No, 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 even more than that. It's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to say. This is what we do. But more than all that, the reason we give ourselves over to the word of God is that it is life. It is life for us. God's word speaks. If we want to know what God's word says, we want to open his word and read it and study it and, and preach it. So lastly, we come to the last point, the peace that David experiences. He is given this assurance. He is given 
this sense of encouragement that God will provide for his people, God will protect his people, that specifically the followers of God are guarded. Notice how David says this. He says, you shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. You shall preserve them, O Lord. So finally, David comes back to the fact that not only is God's word eternal and a solid foundation, Paul writes to Timothy that the the words of Scripture, the words of the Lord, the, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. David is comforted by the fact that God will keep his word. He will keep his people. He will preserve us. Now, this is a good benediction, isn't it? This connects to some of the greatest benedictions in Scripture. Paul, first uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, to the church at Philippi, I am confident of this very thing, that he who has started and begun a good work in you will complete it. Another way of saying it, he will keep you to the end. Jude's benediction, we will not turn there, but where he gives that, that wonderful benediction, now to him who is able to keep. Key word here, in verse 7 of Psalm 12, you shall keep them, O Lord. Jude says, he is able to keep you. Not just y'all, but you, 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 you. All of us, the elect of Christ, but you. What a beautiful promise that is. There's a sense to where we recognize God's love and keeping for the church. And that's great. But it's even better when we think about it. It's for me. And it's for you on an individual level. So believers are guarded. And this gives great peace to David's heart. And as king, as he leads Israel, he is able to stand upon these sure promises of God, knowing that he can face tomorrow. Psalm 12. And friends, it gives us the same assurance as well. What Psalm 12 teaches us is that when we are surrounded when we are outnumbered by the wicked, when we look around and say we are told at our national level and in the, uh, on whatever circumstance it may apply, these are national psalms. One commentator says these are psalms of community. These are communal psalms. David is experiencing these things with, with others. And so we find as the, the church here today that we experience these same types of laments uh, as believers right here in Roan County, Kingston, Tennessee, as we live in our current context. And when we do, we are to run to Christ. When we feel outnumbered and the fact that falsehoods and and, uh, uh, lies and all those things stand, and it seems that the truth is just completely diminished or covered or not valued, then what do we do? We pray to God. We run to Christ. We trust in His promises and His protection. So I want us to close tonight by going back to our call to worship, which was Psalm 18, which I feel like works very well with our psalm tonight. Psalm 18. In fact, different headings are given here for Psalm 18 in my Bible. It's God the Sovereign Savior. God the Sovereign Savior. I love that. So I want us to close tonight, bookend our time together with our call to worship, what we opened with with this. Psalm, Psalmist David says this. He says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock. He is my fortress, and he is my deliverer. He is my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield in the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. 
so shall I be saved from my enemies. As we close this evening, I just want to remind us the truth, God's word, is the most precious thing we have, church. It's what gives life. It's what gives confidence. It's what feeds. It's what nourishes. But particularly making this application to a world of foggy lies and haze, truth analyzes with crystal clarity reality. The truth of Scripture, the biblical mind that we get, the mind of Christ, helps us to see the world we live in. And it helps us to have the confidence by understanding God's standard, God's truth. In fact, you could say it like this, friends. You could sit down at any time, in any place, uh, in a conversation at a coffee shop, having a cup of coffee, at work, at lunch, whatever. And somebody could ask you a moral question, something plucked from the, the headlines of the day. What, what do you think about and then taking the headline of the day? What do you think about it? It doesn't matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter what you think about it. And let's say you don't know anything about the headlines and you don't know anything about the stories, but if you just stay in the Word, devotionally, powerfully, feeding, if you just know the mind of Christ, you, friend, can speak to any issue of the day. It doesn't mean it'll be well-received. It doesn't mean they'll like it. But I will tell you, you will stand out. Because in a world of increasing increasingly cluttered thinking and well I'm not sure and I don't know your truth's your truth and my truth's my truth friends God's word will give you a confidence that nothing else can give you clarity certainty the words of the Lord are pure words my words are not pure words your words are not pure words we are faulty frail human beings but the words of the Lord are pure words let's boast and trust in it alone let's pray together Father in heaven, we exalt in Christ. And we cannot be a Christ-centered people and not be a word-centered people. To be Christ-centered is to be word-centered. And Father, as we grow in the word, we develop the mind of Christ. And we pray here that you would continue to lead us by the Spirit who leads us into the truth, that you would equip us, give us a humility and a confidence that only can come from you. So oftentimes confidence can lead to arrogance. Father, we don't want to be arrogant. But as your people, we don't want to be searching. Well, I'm not sure. It's when people ask us of the hope that lies within us. Help us to know your truth. Would the truth set us free and lead us and embolden us? And would you help us, Lord, to hide in our heart a sure word for when we have opportunities to speak of your truth to others as we give counsel, as we give guidance, we just have everyday conversations where we have this confidence and hope in our living God and his precious word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.